me invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 1 this morning. Exodus chapter 1. We want to begin a study in the book of Exodus. And Exodus really is a continuation of the book of Genesis. Can you turn that down a little bit, Eric? This mic? Thank you. Genesis ends by recording the fact that, that Joseph had died and Israel was not in the land of Israel. They were far away from there in, in the land of Egypt, and we know all uh, what took place in order for them to get there. In Genesis 15, God had promised to Abraham that his descendants would have possession of the land of Israel, but He also promised him that that they would be sojourners in a foreign land. They would be strangers and would be oppressed, he told Abraham, for 400 years. And before Joseph died, he even made his family promise that his bones would be carried back to Israel because he was confident that that God was going to lead the people of Israel back to that land. And so uh, you remember one of the first things that Joshua did when he came into the land was he buried uh, Joseph there in the land of Canaan after the conquest was over. So the beginning of Exodus uh, is is really a continuation of the book of Genesis. And we'll see that here as we get into chapter 1. But what I want to do this morning is I want to give you an overview of the book, what is what the book's about, uh, some of the basic introductory in, information about the book, and then we're going to look at chapter 1 and, and uh, as a way of, of setting the table for what we're going to see in this book. The title of the book is Exodus, and that comes actually not from the Hebrew word. The Hebrew title for it uh, is translated names based on the first verse. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel. But obviously the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Latin Vulgate, uh, they took the word Exodus because... Uh, of the main part of the the book. It's about the removal of Israel from the land of Egypt. And it's really part of a five-volume set that's written by Moses. Moses writes all five of these books. And Exodus is the second volume, and it's really a continuation, as I mentioned. Genesis is all about Israel and its beginning. Uh, we learn about uh, Abraham very early on in the book of Genesis, and then much of the rest of it is how his family grew and expanded and uh, how they gained notoriety. Exodus is about Israel's exodus, and then the second part of the book is about the law of Moses, and that continues into Leviticus, which we've looked at, and then the first part of Numbers as well talks about the law of Moses. Numbers moves on and, and also talks about the wandering of Israel in the wilderness, and then the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the, in, of uh, Moses' uh, books of the law, is about Moses' final sermon as he uh, overlooks the, the the nation of Israel not able to cross into the land. He, he gives his final sermon in apparently a 24-hour period, and it's written uh, there for us in the book of Deuteronomy. It's really to remind the people of Israel about the covenant that they had made with God. The recipients of this book, obviously it's a book about Israel, and it's a book for Israel. Uh, the original readers would have been people of Israel. Moses wanted the people of Israel to know their history and to know this great historical event that took place. And it's, it's a book that, that uh, ought to be at the center or at, at the forefront of the minds of, of the Jews as they would 
as they would grow and expand and move to different parts of the world. The, um, the reason that we know that this is a continuation from the book of Genesis because of the first couple words. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel. And so now we have a connection here from Exodus to Genesis. You're supposed to remember that the sons of Israel had come into Egypt and, uh, and then the names are listed. And then uh, verse 5, all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. So now we know how many people came from Jacob and now who live in, in, uh, in, in Egypt. And so it's, it's connected to, to Genesis, which was a, also for the people of Israel primarily. Now obviously we are beneficiaries of it as well, but it primarily was intended for Israel. The date of the writing or the date of the Exodus, scholars are pretty confident they, they know the, the date of the Exodus. And the reason that we know that is because, or the reason they know that, and I, I, I agree with them, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 tells us that in the sixth year of Solomon's reign, it was 480 years after the Exodus, after the people of Israel were, were, were brought out of Egypt. So 480 years after Solomon's sixth year of reign, works out to 1445 B.C. One of the most helpful ways to think about dates in the Old Testament is just to remember four main dates. And if you can remember these four dates, then it helps you to be able to, to think about all the events in the Old Testament. And the first date is 2000 B.C., and that's when uh, Abraham was around, around 2000 B.C. Then 1500 B.C. is Moses. And then 1000 B.C. is, is um, Nehemiah, or, yes, Nehemiah. And then 500 B.C. is Daniel. So if you can remember those four dates, then it helps you kind of hang your hat on some of these dates to kind of see where, where things are historically. Uh, this is around 1500 B.C. The Exodus took place in 1445 B.C. So here in chapters 1 and 2, we have the setting uh, for the entire book of Exodus. And it takes place over 80 years because Moses is born, you remember, and he doesn't deliver Israel until he's 80 years old. And so then chapters 3 through 40 happen over the period of one year, the plagues, the exodus, and then the giving of the law of Moses at Sinai. So chapters 1 and 2, 80 years, chapters 3 through 40, one year of time. Similar to the book of Genesis, you have several thousand years in the first couple chapters, and then the uh, chapters uh, 3 and uh, chapters 12 and beyond, you have just a short period of time, just a couple generations. All right? So let's uh, think about the outline of the book. How, do, how does the book kind of work itself out? There are two main sections to the book of Exodus. The first is the story of God's deliverance. Chapters 1 through 18, the story of God's deliverance. And the second part of the book, chapters 19 through 40, is uh, all about God's demand for worship. That's where God gives the law at Sinai. Israel's there at the foot of the mountain. We do have some narrative there about Aaron uh, making the golden calf. But, but primarily it's about God giving the law to the people at Sinai. We'll talk about that here in just a second. So first, the story of God's deliverance, chapters 1 through 18. The first part of that is Israel in Egypt. That happens from chapters 1 through 12. They are In chapter 1, we see this oppression that comes on Egypt. The people of Egypt, the rulers of Egypt, oppress the Israelites. 
And uh, so we're going to find out how they're removed from this oppression. And the, the way that they're removed from this oppression, we all know, is through the man Moses. And he's talked about in chapter 2, his birth and his calling in chapters 3 and 4. And, uh, and this, this oppression in chapter 1 really leads to the potential of all the boys in Israel being killed. But, but Moses is spared, you remember, uh, because of his mother and his sister and the king's own daughter. God calls him in chapter 3. And then in chapters 5-11, through 11, we have the confrontation with Pharaoh. Um, so after God calls Moses, He uses Moses to confront Pharaoh, let my people go. And of course, Pharaoh doesn't want to. He won't comply. And that's when God brings on each of the ten plagues. The first nine of them are in chapters 5-11. through 11, And then the, the Passover, the, uh, the death of the firstborn, was in chapter 12. So you have Israel in Egypt, chapters 1 through 12, and then Israel fleeing from Egypt, chapters 13 through 18. They go through the Red Sea in chapters 13 to 15. Pharaoh, remember, lets them go, and and yet then he has a change of heart and says, No, I shouldn't have done that, and so he sends his troops after them, and God delivers Israel through the Red Sea, and Israel gives praise to God for his mercy with a great song there in chapter 15. And then in chapters 16 through 18 is the beginning of their wandering. Uh, no sooner did they get delivered from God that they begin complaining about their lack of water and lack of food and God provides for them and reminds them about what He's done in the Exodus. And then chapters 19 through 40 is the second part. So God's story of deliverance, chapters 1 through 18, and then God's demand for worship in chapters 19 through 40. They, God makes a covenant with Moses and Israel in 19 through 24. He gives instructions for worship in chapters 25 to 31, and also in 35 through 40, and then of course we have the golden calf incident uh, sandwiched between those. So, what is the purpose of the book? Why has God left us with the record of this detailed account of Israel's history and Israel's law? What is the purpose of this book? Well, one of the ways that you find the purpose in, in anything, you can do this when you read the newspaper, is to find that the things that are repeated. Uh, what are the items or the the themes that are repeated throughout the book? And one of the most frequently recurring themes is the idea of being delivered from Egypt. This phrase is used out of Egypt, used about 31 times. And the Exodus, by the way, is one of the most frequently, if not the most frequently, alluded event in the entire Old Testament. The writers are constantly pointing back to what God did in Egypt and at the Red Sea. Don't you remember what God did for you? This is why you can count on God now because of what He did at the, at the Red Sea. What He did in Egypt by sending these plagues on the Egyptians. It's like we as Christians who constantly point back to the cross and the resurrection and rightfully so. For the Old Testament believer, it was being reminded about God removing His people from the oppression of, of slavery to the Egyptians. But God didn't just deliver them out of Egypt. Turn to chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. Okay, so if the, one of the main themes is for God to deliver the people from Egypt, then what does this mean for the people of Israel? Well, well here we get an answer in verse 12. And He, God, said... Certainly I will be with you, speaking to Moses, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God 
at this mountain. So here's Moses at the burning bush, and God's saying, listen, Moses, when you brought these people out, here's what I want for you. I want you to worship me at this mountain. God delivered them for a purpose. We see this constantly as God is telling Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron that that Pharaoh ought to let his people go. Turn to chapter 5, verse 1. And notice the reason why each time God gives this command, at least the ones we're going to look at, each time He tells them, tells Pharaoh to let His people go, notice why. Chapter 5, verse 1. And afterward Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go. And then why? What's the purpose? That they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. So here God is giving Pharaoh a reason for why He's letting them go so that they can worship Him. And obviously, God is worshipped through at this time through sacrifices that they had to make a had to have atonement made for their sins. This is why God's doing it. Turn to chapter seven, verse sixteen. See the same thing. Chapter seven, verse sixteen. You shall say to him, Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go. Why? That they may serve me in the wilderness. Chapter eight, verse one. Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Chapter 9, verse 13, The Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the... That's not the right one. That's 8.13. Sorry, 9.13. There's also one in 9.1, but it says the same thing. Chapter 9, verse 13, The Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, and they may serve me. And then chapter 10, verse 3, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. So, if the main theme in the book of Exodus is for God to deliver His people out of Egypt, the, the explanation or the, the fuller um, the fuller version of that is that God delivered His people from Egypt so that they would worship Him. And the outline of the book is really just that. Chapters 1-18, through 18, the story of God's deliverance. God delivers His people. And the purpose of that, what's chapters 19-40 through 40 about? What did I say? God's demand for worship. So God delivers them from Egypt, chapters 1-18, through 18, but that's not the end of the story. It's so that they can worship Him. Chapters 19 through 40. This is a big part of what God is doing. He, he is demanding that His people worship Him. And the reason that God demands worship of Himself for the people of Israel, the reason God demands worship of Himself for us is because He is worthy of worship and because He d- desires to dwell among His people. He de- desires to have a relationship with Him, with, with us. And that's why He spends... Chapters 25 to 31 and chapters 35 through 40, talking about the tabernacle and all the requirements that are involved in the tabernacle, because we're going to see at the very end of Exodus, when we come to it, that, that God finally comes in the glory cloud into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle that they've built. See, God was culminating all of this Exodus. It's not just about God's deliverance, it's about God being worshipped. A place where, where He can dwell among His people. Friends, our lives as Christians are very similar 
God saved us from something, didn't He? He saved us from the oppression, the power of sin. But He didn't just do that, did He? He saved us to something as well. He saved us from sin and to righteousness so that we would worship Him. It's true that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves, but it's a gift of God so that none of us can boast. But what does Ephesians 2.10 says just after those two verses? It says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. So God saved us from something, but He didn't just do that. He saved us to something. He saved us to good works. Turn to chapter 6 because we really see uh, probably the greatest summary of why God is doing all of this. And this will lead us to, the, I think, the theme of the book. Chapter 6, verse 6. God's telling Moses why this needs to be the case. Why He needs to tell the sons of Israel, the people of Israel, what's going on. Say therefore, God says to Moses, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you up, uh, brought you out from under the bur- burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. First thing we want to notice here in verse 6 is God's concern for the people. What is God saving them from? He's trying to bring them out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and from their bondage. So God is concerned about their burden. He hears their groans. He hears their cries to Him. God is concerned for them. And then we see at the end of verse 6 God's power that He will do it with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And we constantly are pointing back to this great work of God when He brought about these supernatural, spectacular judgments upon the people of Egypt. God is powerful. We also see God's pursuit for His own glory in verse 7. Then I will take you for My people. This is, the, this is what I was talking about before, that God demands worship. He, I will take you for My people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I want you to know, Israel, that I am God. And we're going to see this throughout the book, that God is constantly wanting to the Israel to know what a great God He is. And what a great way to display it than through the plagues and the exodus through the Red Sea. He would also show Himself to the Egyptians. He wanted the Egyptians to know that He alone was God. And then in verse 8, we see God's blessing. What was He leading them to ultimately? He was going to provide for them this land that He had promised. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you. For possession I am the Lord. So here's the message of Exodus. It's essentially the message of the Old Testament, and it is this. God alone delivers His people, and therefore they must obey Him. Therefore they must worship Him. We can say it this way. Because God delivers His people, His people must worship Him. So, He delivers His people through the plagues and the exodus, and therefore, Sinai, chapters 19-40, through they must worship Him. This is basically the, the message of the Old Testament. We could say it's the message of our life. The reason God delivers us is so that we will worship Him. 
So, the first 18 chapters are all about God's deliverance. God's story of deliverance of His people. And chapter 1, turn back there, chapter 1 provides for us the setting for these events that will take place in the first 18 chapters. Chapter 1 provides the setting for God's deliverance. So let's read this together. I'll read, you follow along. Exodus chapter 1. This is the Word of God. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were seventy in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters masters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, and so that, uh, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks, and at all kinds of labor in the field and all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other was named Puah. And he said, When you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it's a son, then she'll put him to death. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, He established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. So here we have the setting for God's deliverance. God's deliverance is going to come through specifically one man, really two, but, but Moses. And this provides a setting for it that uh, Egypt is now threatened by the people of Israel. And that's what we read about in verses 1-8. through eight. There's this growing threat of Israel. Joseph had died at the age of 110, 200 years had passed since the time of his death until up until verse 8. And the previous pharaohs knew of Joseph. They knew of his coffin that resided right there in Egypt. They treated Israel well on account of him. They recognized the great value that Israel was to the people of Egypt. But then verse 8 reads, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This king, this pharaoh, recognized something important for his nation. And that is that if that Israel was becoming an increasing threat because of their size, because of their growing population, they would be able to defeat them in battle, either with their own number 
or by allying themselves with other nations. And then they would leave. They were afraid of that. We read about that here. They would leave from, from the land at the end of verse 10. And that would be a problem for Egypt because there was, there was a lot of financial well-being that Israel was providing for the land. So the king recognized this growing threat. And think about it. What kind of a threat this was. How many people from Israel came to, to Egypt according to verse 5? Okay, there, were, there, were 70, there were 70 people. This is 70 in number. This is 70 men. Because if you go back to Genesis where it's recorded who all came, it's, it's just recording the men there. So there's probably a couple hundred people came to Egypt from Israel. How many people leave? Egypt. Yeah, Numbers chapter 1, verse 46, we have a census of the military men, the people who are over the age of 18 or 20. They were able to, to fight in battle, and it was 600,000 men. So we're talking probably a couple million people are leaving Egypt. So at this time, there's probably not that many, because remember, there's still another 80 years before the Exodus happens, but there's probably a million, a million and a half, two million people by this time. And so they have become a serious threat to the people of Egypt and the king recognizes it. And so he makes three attempts to eliminate this threat in verses 9 through 22. The first attempt, the first attempt is to increase the workload. Maybe if we make it harder on them, they'll recognize who really is the boss. And so they involve uh, involve the Israelites into building projects, perhaps digging canals, uh, as Josephus records. Um, certainly some agricultural work, as verse 14 says. Verse 11 tells us they're responsible for building which two cities, right? These two Egyptian cities of Pithom and Ramses were built by Israel. This is, this is uh, what the Egyptians had them do. But what happened? It actually backfired on them. It didn't work. They were trying to to remove the threat of Israel, but instead, what happens in verse 12? But the more they afflicted them, the more Israel multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. They started to spread out as they grew in number. So the first attempt is to increase the workload. The second attempt is to kill the baby boys and specifically to have the midwives do it. The Hebrew midwives... They're listed here by name, Shifra and Puah. These are probably not the only two midwives. They're probably the chief midwives. And they're brought before Pharaoh. And I think secretly, Pharaoh says, listen, when, when a boy is born, you check the gender of that baby. When, if it's a boy, you kill him at birth. And probably done secretly so that he would not have a, an uprising. You know, if he did it openly, just uh, all baby boys must be killed like he's going to do later going to have an uprising of the people of Israel, but instead he does it secretly, I think, through the midwives and says, you know, the, the mothers aren't going to know what's going on. Just say something happened at birth, but you kill, you kill the baby. And um, so this king of Egypt is, is very corrupt, but I don't think he was stupid, and that's why I think he does it secretly. He's probably making a political move here to protect his own, um, his own rule. But we know something that Pharaoh didn't know about these midwives. And that is, verse 17, that these midwives feared God. And this 
fear of God is mentioned two times, verse 17 and verse 21. They feared God. And this is to highlight the fact that they were concerned about human life. Now, what, what do you suppose the punishment would have been for a couple of ladies who were unwilling to obey Pharaoh? And yet, even though death was likely the sentence for them, they were willing to suffer the consequences of what they had done in order to honor the value of human life. And what a great example for us to follow, that we fear God above all human rulers, even if death is the potential sentence that comes upon us if we disobey the government in obedience of God. Well, if this were a secret mission, as I'm suggesting, by Pharaoh, then it would have taken some time for the Egyptians to to figure out whether they were obeying or not. Because the Egyptians, if it's a secret mission, couldn't very well come to each tent and say, all right, let's see the gender of your baby. Uh, They couldn't very well do that. And so it would take several years before they discovered whether these boys, these were boys or, or girls. And as they did, they apparently found out what happened. And I think that Aaron was one of the ones that was protected. Moses' brother, Aaron, was one of the ones that was protected by these midwives. And the reason I think that is because Aaron was born three years before Moses. And I, I think that this second decree comes probably after that. And so Aaron very well could have been protected just like Moses was. The text of Scripture doesn't say Verse 18, Pharaoh discovers that the Hebrew boys are not being killed, but instead are being allowed to live. And so he brings the midwives before him. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives, verse 18, and said, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? He calls them back and inquires of them, What is going on? Why did you not follow what I demanded that you do? And their response is a famous one in verse 19. Because the Hebrew women... They say, are not as the Egyptian one, women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. Now, they could be telling the truth here. There's two options. They could be telling the truth. They could have developed a system among Israel and said, listen, we're required to kill all of the baby boys. So when, you, so when they're doing their prenatal uh, uh, visits with all the Israelite women, they tell them, listen, don't, tell, don't call us when the baby's born until after the baby's born. Don't call us before that because then we'll have plausible deniability. We can't say that that, that we we knew. So don't tell us until after the baby's born. We'll take care of it from there. But but, um, Pharaoh was telling telling them, deliver the baby and then kill them. So that's what they could have done. It's like the boss who suspects that some fraud is going on at work, but he really likes how it's affecting the bottom line positively. And so he kind of turns a blind eye to what's going on so that he can deny that he knew about it. Um, and, and the midwives do a similar thing. Uh, the difference is they do it out of a good heart. They don't want to know, so they can't be there, or else if they're there, they have to kill the boys in, in um, obedience of the king. And then they would have to tell the truth. But, but the other option is that they're actually telling a lie. And I think clearest understanding of this is that this this is probably what took place. That they were, in order to protect human life, they're telling a lie. So, uh, we don't have a whole lot of time to, to talk about this, but as I've mentioned before, and we studied Joshua with the story of Rahab, just because the Scriptures record an event that where a person acts in evil and the result is that they're blessed doesn't mean that God approves of it. 
Okay? Just because Rahab lied about the spies who were on her roof doesn't make what she did right even though God blessed her. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that, that lying was right. It means that God was, was happy that He honored him in, in protecting the spies. And here, in protecting these children, God was thankful for that. He was, he was, um, he was uh, blessing them as a result. But the, the, the text of Scripture we need to recognize, especially the Old Testament, the narrative portions of Scripture, often records events as they actually are without giving a, a commentary on what we should think about it. Now, the New Testament tends to give a lot of commentary on what we ought to think about certain situations, but when you get the narratives, it just tells the story as it is, and we as the readers are supposed to know from the rest of Scripture whether that thing is right or wrong. So, if God is a truthful God and He demands that we be truthful, that we do not bear false witness to our neighbor, then what do you think? Do you think the the uh, Hebrew midwives were right in lying in order for, to protect a human life. Well, I think the answer to that might be helpful if we think about the greatest uh, example for us who ever lived, and that was Jesus. If Jesus were put in this sort of position where he had to kill a life uh, or protect it, obviously he would seek to protect it, but if he was put in a position where he stood, stood before Pharaoh, do you think he would lie in order to protect a human life? And I think we have to say, that's a difficult question, one, but, but I think we have to say that the answer is no, right? You see, Jesus sees something bigger than what these human rulers are doing here. He recognizes that God is in control of all of this. Like, there is a bigger human, there's a bigger ruler at, uh, in charge, there's something bigger at stake than, than what's going on here. Remember when John the Baptist was in prison? You think Jesus could have prevented the death of John the Baptist if he wanted to? Absolutely he could have. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He, but he also knew that God had a purpose in John's death. And so he wasn't willing to sacrifice his morality, his integrity, in order to protect the life of John. You see, there's a couple things at play here when it comes to the Hebrew midwives. They needed to recognize that there is a greater authority. I think they, they kind of recognized it, but they also need to recognize that it's not willing to sacrifice your own morality. Now, should they have killed the babies? I'm not suggesting that. But should they have lied about it to Pharaoh? This is what I'm suggesting they should not have done. They should have told the truth. Because really, at that point, they're not protecting the babies. They're actually protecting themselves, right? Because when they tell the truth, the likely sentence is going to be death. Well, the Scriptures refer to this incident and then it talks about God blessing them in verse 21. Because the midwives feared God, He established households for them. Now, their fear of God is seen not in, in their lying for God. Okay, that doesn't even make sense, the lie for God. But, but their, their fear of God is seen in their protecting of human life and not killing them. That's why God prospered their families. Ver, uh, the verse 22, we have the final attempt to suppress this threat. So verses 9 through 22, verses 1 through 8, they see the threat of Israel. They're growing. They're expanding. So they try to suppress the threat first by increasing their workload. That doesn't work. Israel grows and becomes greater and starts to spread out in geographic region. Second attempt 
is by ordering the Hebrew midwives to kill the babies. That doesn't work because the, the Hebrew boys, I should say, the, the boys are still living. So here's the third attempt, verse 22. In order to suppress the threat, Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Everyone, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep, keep alive. If the Hebrew midwives were not willing to kill the sons, if they couldn't get the Hebrew midwives to make it happen, then the Egyptian soldiers were going to do it. And it would be much more, uh, much, much less subtle than it was before. If, if that was done in secret, this is done in open. We're taking the babies from you and we're throwing them in the Nile. And uh, this would, would have made for quick and easy work for the Egyptian soldiers. They would just go to the tent, find a Hebrew boy, throw it in the Nile, no cleanup, no human remains. They would be out of sight and out of mind for them and they would probably hope for the Israelite families. So, here, it's Egypt is feeling threatened by the threat of Israel, and so they work to try to suppress Israel even more and try to, to, keep, to keep Israel from expanding and growing, becoming a greater threat. But, but what we need to see in all this, we, we know the rest of the story, but, but what we need to see in this setting in chapter 1 is that God is, e- is at work even when it feels like He's absent. God is at work even when He feels like he is absent. Sometimes it feels like God is not there. He has forgotten about us. But but we need to recognize that God often has a different timetable than we have. I can't imagine the the stress and the anxiety that the people of Israel had during this time. But but how soon after this did God finally deliver them? It wasn't for another 80 years that they would be going through this kind of thing. And uh and yet God would eventually deliver them. In fact, their, their workload became even greater when Moses started to come back to Pharaoh and tell him about this, these plagues and that he needed to let God's people go. See, we want our trial removed now, but God wants us to go through our trial. We, we, want, we think the best thing for us is to have the trial removed. God's saying, no, the best thing for you is to go through it so that you can learn from it, so that you can grow in faith, so that you can share in the sufferings of Christ. Whatever the case, whatever's happening in our lives, God is at work. And He's working out all the events of history, both the great events, like we're going to see the plagues and the exodus, all the way to the small ones, like the protection of little baby Moses from being killed. And He's doing so in order that He might come into a relationship with us and with those to whom we tell about His fame. And that's what He's doing with Israel. He's wanting to get them to a place where where they can worship Him. God has delivered us from the power of sin so that we could worship Him, so that we could come into His presence, so that He can have a relationship with us. And while we now can see Him dimly, one day we will see Him face to face. God enters into relationship with us. He delivers us from the oppression of sin so that we would worship Him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the story of the people of Israel and how it reminds us of what You've done for us. We're thankful for this great event of You bringing Your people out of Egypt. And it reminds us of You bringing us out from underneath the oppression of sin, the, the uh, 
the power of sin, the, the reign, the hold that it had on our lives before Christ came. And uh, Lord, we, we are thankful that You did not just rescue us from eternal flames, but You, you uh, caused us to do something. You, you led us to come into relationship with You, to perform good works, so that Your name would be glorified even more. And we pray that You would help us to be that our desire in life, to, to honor You by, by making Your name known, by, by living out genuine Christian lives. We pray that You'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen.